You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 35 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. Happy New Year. 2018 is upon us. The older I get, the quicker the years go by. I hope you're ready for the next 12 months. I certainly am and I'm excited for what they could bring. And I'm also excited about this episode, um, episode 35. We got the chance to sit down with Vince McCauley. Of course, Vince is the owner of the London Lions, London's only professional basketball franchise. And like so many of our guests, he's been around the game an awfully long time. Uh, and these are the types of people that have just got so much insight uh, to share, not only just about the history, but also things they've seen and lessons that can be taken uh, sort of moving forward. You know, we spoke about everything ranging from the early years, his playing days, um, to uh, Hemel, to Milton Keynes, and obviously now to London, um, their aspirations for Europe, how, th- how that's going. Uh, and then also a little bit on the sort of the marketing side of the BBL and, and the perceived value of British basketball and how things can be done to change that and what needs to be done to improve that. Um, but yeah, I really actually enjoyed this conversation and I think that you will too. Uh, so I hope you do. Uh, as always, you can give me any feedback, thoughts, comments, critiques uh, on my email, email address, sam at hoopsfix.com, or you can reach me on all the social media profiles at hoopsfix. We'd love to hear from you. And if you can take a quick 20 seconds out of your day to give us a rating and review on iTunes, it would be massively appreciated. Anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, here is my conversation with Vince McCauley. We are honoured to be here today and be joined by Vince McCauley from London Lions. Vince, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you, Sam. Glad to be here. So, uh, you're very well known within the British basketball scenes, but I think it's, it's good to give people a, a bit of context and go back to the early days and talk about uh, how you first got involved with basketball and, um, yeah, like how it all began. <laughs> well, yes, that is going back a long way. Um, well, I, I was fortunate. Uh, I was in school in Liverpool when I was 16. I'd never picked up a basketball. And uh, I, I was asked to play in a school game because they only had four players and couldn't start the game without five. Um, and we, we did OK in that game. And I, and I noticed a guy in the background walking around the court, just walking around during the game. I didn't know who this guy was. But at the end of the, at the, end of the game, this guy approached me and said, uh, oh, I've not seen you before around here. Uh, where, do you, where do you play? And I said, oh, sorry, I've only just come here from Africa because obviously I'd grown up in Nigeria. And this was my first kind of three months in, uh, in Liverpool. And this gentleman happened to be Jimmy Rogers. And uh, he asked me to come and train with his team in Liverpool, now, then known as Liverpool ATAC. And, uh, and that's where I was fortunate enough to, to start learning the game alongside people like uh, Paul Ambrosius, Wayne, uh, Wayne uh, Joey Ray, people like that, who, who were all part of Jimmy Rogers' ATAC team. I literally never knew that uh, you first got involved with the game through Jimmy Rogers. So there's, <laughs> there's the first revelation already, just the first question in. So that's, oh, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what were, what, were your kind of, what were your kind of early memories of, of British basketball back then? What was the, what was the lay of the landscape? How did things uh, look for the state of the game uh, across the UK? Well, <clears throat> at that time, I was, I was obviously very wide-eyed. I knew nothing about the game. I just saw these great players around me. And, and Jimmy was already a legend, you know. Uh, he played for England and everything else. So, so I was, you know, in awe of everything. So the first thing he did after a few, a few, uh, a few weeks of playing, he sent me to a basketball camp in Derby um, that, was, um, that was wrong. I'm, trying, I'm just trying to think of the name of the, the American coach. and It'll come to me in a minute. But my own particular coach uh, in our group of guys at that camp in Matlock in Derby um, was Paul Stimson, who was then the, the, the England captain. And uh, on my team as a 16, 17-year-old was Paul James. 
Um, so that was my first introduction to anybody outside of Liverpool um, from a basketball perspective. So that was that was huge for me. I mean, I met Humph Long there. I met so many great coaches there and was hugely inspired uh, at that point, you know. And and um, and then Jimmy then decided he was going to show us some some games and it was all about what there were no limits to what we could all achieve as, as players. So he took me over to Manchester to watch a, I guess, well, it would have been a Division One game as opposed to a BBL game, but I guess the highest level of the game at the time. And I think it was Manchester were playing against Crystal Palace with a little point guard by the name of Alton Bird. And uh, that's when I first saw Alton play and that's when I realised the world of basketball was massive and I, and I was eager to, to gobble it up. So were you, did you know at that point, was it like seeing Alton Bird and sort of the, the, the bigger names that uh, kind of inspired you and knew that then, OK, basketball is what I want to be involved with and do and kind of make a career out of? Well, it, well, it was certainly what inspired me with basketball. Definitely Alton Bird there and Alan Cunningham two months later when I went down to the Phillips tournament and I saw him as a, as a young man. Um, but I was actually in Liverpool because my, my stepdad had sent me there to qualify, get my A-levels and go to the London International Film School in Covent Garden. So my job was to become a filmmaker. Um, and that was all I wanted to do. So th this basketball thing took over. Um, and certainly for my couple of years in Liverpool, while I was doing my A-levels, I was basketball all the time. Um, but I was fortunate enough to, to get my qualifications. And then at that point... I had to move to London to go to the, to the International Film School at Covent Garden and, and separate from Jimmy. So even though I was, you know, I was getting better at basketball and I was really immersed in it, I was still focused on being a filmmaker. Um, and when I was going to leave um, Liverpool, Jimmy said to me that he would pass me on to somebody in London um, at the Camden and Hampstead Basketball Club, um, which was run then by Bob Mackay. Bob Mackay was a teammate of, uh, of, of Jimmy's on the England team, a fantastic guy. Uh, at Camden. Um, so I moved down to, to London, uh, went, attended the film school and then went and joined this team in, in Camden and Hampstead. Uh, and there is where I came across, uh, you know, 14 year old Sam Stiller, people like Charlie Bannerman. Uh, I first came into competition against Mark Dunning, who was then coaching Bron uh, Brunel, I think. Um, and, and so now, <laughs> you know, the basketball and the filmmaking were going side by side in, in my first sort of sojourn in London, if you like. So what level, uh, what level was that club competing at? So that club was, in effect, I guess you would call the second division because um, you had people like Crystal Palace, uh, Manchester, Sunderland and so on in the, in the top league and we were in the next league down. But that next league down had two particularly awesome teams. Ironically, as I just left Liverpool, there was a huge setup in Liverpool led by Mike Pyatt and, um, and the guys, I'm trying to think of the, the big guy um, with the big 10-ton uh, hat. And I look up, jeez. Uh, um, the, the, guy the guys set up, who used to run a team called Bruno Roughcutters, now set up a new Liverpool team to try to get into the first division. So they played in the second division that year, as did the original Solon Stars with Mark Sayers and TJ Robinson, Paul Philp uh, and all those guys. Um, so that was, albeit the second division, highly competitive because those two teams were first and second and went up into the top league. So in terms of, um, you're going to have to forgive my ignorance here because I, you know, no, no. This, is, this is before my time. So uh, <laughs> in, in terms of like the the top flight and, and the second division, you know, were they was the top flight a professional league? Were were guys getting paid to play basketball and just play basketball? Kind of what was, um, yeah, like What was the sort of financial yeah. situation and sort of career well, situation? I think... <clears throat> Obviously, I think the Americans were getting paid and I think one or two of the top 
uh, international British players were getting paid. I mean, if you look at those uh, Crystal Palace teams back then, you're talking about people like Pete Jeremich uh, as British players and so on. So those guys would have been getting paid. I don't know how deep they went. I know the young guys on the bench, you know, Colton Lee, I think Basil Phillips was a young kid at the time. I'm not sure they were getting paid, but it was certainly professional to some extent. And there was obviously a lot of American coaches at that time trying to, trying to develop the game. Yeah. And what were the crowds like? Um, the crowds were, I remember, you know, the games I went to watch in Manchester, Sunderland, you know, 800, 1,000 people probably. I, I don't remember any particularly big venues. I think in my mind, I seem to remember Team Fiat, uh, Birmingham, uh, who were then run by Bob Hope. Um, and they were playing at uh, the Aston Villa Leisure Centre, as was then. Uh, they were getting probably the biggest crowds at that time, maybe close to 2,000 people at that time. Why do you think, uh, you know, you mentioned there, like, there's, a, there's a team called Team Fiat. So you, you kind of you still had these, these big brands that were involved sponsorship-wise. Um, yeah, oh yes. I mean, so, uh, Sunderland was sun-blessed, with, with, you know, the big, the big, the big uh, bread people and stuff. Um, I seem to remember Crystal Palace was Blue Nun, which I think is a wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. um, you know, so there were some, some sponsorships going around at that time, yes. Why do you, why do you think that changed? Like, because now, now it always seems that, like, teams, teams seem to struggle with getting, like, a big, sort of, big uh, name sponsor. Um, yeah, I, I think it's different. <clears throat> I think the marketing environment in, in the UK today and the world in general is different. I think back then it was a case of where the factory was based or where the head office was based. I mean, um, I know we'll talk about Hemel later on, but obviously when I was playing against Hemel in those days, they were Ovaltine, and Ovaltine was just down the road in, in Watford. Right. So in those days, it was around those kind of local contacts. I mean, today, I mean, you can't find anybody who actually runs a company. You've got to yeah. fit into their brand perspectives, and if you do, you do, and if you don't, you don't. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas then, I just think it was very much about contacts, and, and um, when I eventually started looking for sponsorships, that's what I, you know, tapped on. It was about local contacts and local people. Right. So then, so, so, so you came, you came down to London. You were doing the film thing whilst sort of playing as well. Yeah. Um, yes. And yeah, so, what, what uh, happened from there? <laughs> So what happened from there was, uh, I think a year or two in, everything was going fine. Um, in fact, I think I had just, uh, had I just about graduated from the film school um, and I got a phone call and it was Jimmy Rogers. And he said, hey, Vince, I'm, I'm down in London and I want to set up a team. And I'm like, oh, great. Where should we, where should we set this team up? And he said, well, I'm going to set it up in Brixton. So I said, OK. So we went along and uh, I got together with Jimmy. Uh, we accessed the Nike sp sponsorship for the first ever time. And, um, and like I said, in fact, they would help us really push this thing and send one of the guys down, a young fella by the name of Michael Jordan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 1986, and we're trying to get the uh, Brixton Recreation Center ready for his first ever basketball game. And we had to kind of host this guy who was just entering his first um, uh, season in the NBA. And <laughs> literally, they, so there was I for the first time using my uh, filming and basketball stuff because I actually made a little, well, very poor now, I guess, when I look at it, a uh, documentary or 15-minute piece on Michael Jordan's visit to Brixton, which is still on YouTube, I believe. Yeah, I've seen um, that. And, and he came to, to, to Brixton, and, and, you know, we kind of galvanized everyone, and that was our first season uh, as the Brixton Topcats. So I became the first captain of the first Brixton Topcats. Um, our coach was Mark Dunning, and our assistant coach was uh, Charlie Bannerman from Camden and Hampstead. And... Um, I think, you know, we had all the best young London basketball players, you know, come and play for us. Jody John was there, who'd, who'd come to London from Liverpool. I mentioned Basil Phillips earlier. Uh, so many of the young English guys ha suddenly had a London team to be around that wasn't 
you know, unreachable as Crystal Palace were being very successful at that time. And they were pretty unreachable to all of us. So, so were you actually a co-founder of the Top Cats with, with, um, with Jimmy? Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't put any money in, but um, I was a co-founder as far as, you know, what colours should we play in? How should we set this thing up? Who should we bring in? Who should coach? All that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. And then, so, uh, were you, had you stopped playing at this point? No, I played. I played, I played for another two seasons with Brixton. As I say, I was the captain there. We, we played some very big games. We played in the cup against the teams in the top league because, obviously, this, again, was the second division. Don't forget, we're trying to get into the first division. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I remember getting knocked out by one point by Crystal Palace. Um, we had Jimmy Brandon play with us as, a, as an American player. Um, Junior Williams was a young uh, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old at that time. The, the young Baker twins were, were in our junior program. Um, so we were really changing things. And that's when, you know, I don't know, you know, probably come across Fat Freddy for those guys out there, you know, yeah. who love their music and basketball. You know, he, you know, he was playing the music at the games, you know, the, you know, the rough house of fun and dunking. And, and that's where it all came about. So who were the other clubs in London at the time other than Crystal Palace? Um, well, in the top league, I think it was only Crystal Palace. The nearest team after that would have been the Hemel Royals, who had Harvey Knuckles playing for them at that time. Um, so that uh, Sadie Frederick also was, was down there. So that was our closest team. I think, you know, Brixton down, down there in the middle. Oh, Thames Valley. Thames Valley Tigers there. They, they had, you know, Michael Hales, uh, uh, Richard Scantle, uh, Peter Scantleberry, and, and the rest of those guys. They were, you know, obviously towards the to west side. Um, and then... The only other team at that time, which was quite important, I didn't realise would become important to me, the only other team in that league in London at that time now was either Camden and Hampstead or Tower Hamlets. Do you think that uh, that was a good time for London basketball in general? Um, it was. It was a very good time because there seemed to be a lot of young basketball players coming through. I think the Channel 4... I'm just trying to get my kind of timings right, but I think the Channel 4 thing had just come out and, and the first game ever shown on Channel 4 involved Crystal Palace and it involved uh, a game-winning three-pointer or, or long shot. I don't even know if we had a three-pointer by that time. It was a long <laughs> shot by, Col by Colton Lee, a young English kid uh, for Crystal Palace, won the game with this long shot on the buzzer. And, and everybody seemed to remember that and see that. And, and, and so everywhere you looked, there were young and up-and-coming players, East London, West London, South London, all over the place, actually. So, Connie, were you? Did you have? You know, you were still playing when you when you got to Brixton. Yep. Um, but of course, you were involved with the setup of the club. Had you kind of had an eye at that point? You were already thinking potentially down the line, you want to have your own club. You want to you want to own a club, or, or was it not something that it kind of that you were thinking about too much at that point? Well, it, it, it wasn't. I don't think I thought about owning a club, but I just thought that there was so much to be achieved. You know, I, and obviously because of the introduction early to Michael Jordan, I started following his career. I started really getting into to, um, uh, watching games in the States on Pontel and, and scouring anywhere yeah. we could find games in the States to, to see what we could do. And, and um, one of the biggest tests, I think at that time, it was close to when before I left Brixton, but that was when the, one of the Brixton riots took place at that time. And, um, and we had a game scheduled for that weekend at home. And I remember this big conversation between myself and Jimmy and some of the helpers around the team. And, and we had a marketing lady working for us. And, and everybody was telling us to cancel the game and cancel the game. And, and I remember it was, a, it was the first time I was having to make a decision or be involved in a decision around what this club stood for, what, what this whole thing stood for. And we kind of, you know, I, I promoted the idea that, look, you know, we, we stood for bringing everyone together. And if we cancel this game, 
um, it, it, it wouldn't be the message we wanted to send, you know, in the middle of these riots. Bearing in mind, I just survived the Liverpool riots <clears throat> before my return to, to London. So, in the end, we agreed to go ahead and play the game. But ironically, the team that whoever we were playing were too scared to come down and they ended up calling the game off. So, it was the first time I started thinking about this game more than what was happening on the floor. Right. And so then what was your progression from, from that? So, you had, you had two years playing for, <coughs> two, two years playing for yeah. Brixton. That's right. So what then happened was um, I was beginning to get quite a bit of work on the filming. I was doing a lot of work for the BBC. I, I was interviewing around, around the UK, sometimes out of the country. And uh, one of our philosophies, well, the very first philosophy we set up at, uh, at Brixton was if you don't practice, you don't play. So I remember Jimmy saying to me one game, well, you know, you're not playing at the weekend. I'm like, what? What? He said, well, you know, you have, you have been at practice, you know. And this kind of happened, you know, a fair few times as time went on. And I realized, well, actually, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this because obviously I was still pursuing my dream to be a, a filmmaker, you know. And uh, So the filmmaking so, was still the, the, the main goal above basketball? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'd computed the fact that actually, you know, basketball could be looked upon as a business. You know, I mean, I didn't see necessarily, even though, you know, I mentioned some of these teams around the league, I, I didn't, it didn't strike me at that time. I suppose I was 23, 24. It didn't strike me that these were businesses. Yeah. You know, um, and so, you know, I really didn't get that message. And, and obviously the NBA was only just turning around. You know, the NBA was hugely unsuccessful. You know, it was only around about the time of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and, and uh, you know, the big the, the way in which they set the marketing up with that and Converse with the shoes and, and, uh, and Michael Jordan then coming. It's only then that the NBA, I guess, coinciding with the arrival of David Stern, began to be commercially successful. Yeah. Um, so we weren't thinking that, you know, in, in London, you know. So, um, so the film, for me, you know, I mean, when one of my classmates at, at the film school was... Um, I'd made some huge movies, and, and, and so I wanted to do that. So, I, you know, I said to Jimmy, I understand. And I happened to be living in Ilford, uh, traveling to Brixton at that time. And uh, I decided to go and talk to one of our arch rivals, which was Tower Hamlets, because they were closer to where I lived. Um, ironically, where they trained is literally 500 yards from the site of the Copper Box today. Um, so I went down there to meet with uh, Roy Childs, who ran the team, and a guy I always fought with on the court, Paul Harbridge. I mean, no matter whether I was playing for Camden and Hampstead or playing for Brixton, anytime we saw each other, we always fought each other physically right. on the court. <laughs> and yet, when I met him and we talked and, and I said, look, you know, I want to come and play. I don't know how many sessions I can make, blah, blah, blah. They welcomed me in. In fact, it was myself and another young East Londoner by the name of Dylan Cole, who was a young English point guard who was with me at Brixton, um, but couldn't get any time because we had so many guards ahead of him, Junior Taylor, Junior Williams. Too many people, he wasn't getting much time. So he came along with me to Tower Hamlets. We joined um, Roy Childs and, and, and Paul there at Tower Hamlets and suddenly be started becoming more successful. Actually ended up knocking Brixton out of the cup final. Um, and, um, and that was when I began to see that there were other things because Roy, Roy was a teacher uh, at school in East London um, at Sir John Cass. And... Um, and he was, he was a, a whole different kind of person than I'd ever met in basketball. He really, he cared for the guys. He, he understood the different, we had Daryl Rishaw as our American player. We had um, different combination of England, uh, of England players. Um, but it, it, seemed to, it seemed to be more, I don't know how I can describe, say, college and the NBA versus Brixton and Tower Hamlets. Yeah. You know, 
in Brixton, we were so fundamentally focused really about all the right things of basketball as a game. Um, whereas at Town Hamlets, it was always a case of, you know, there were opportunities out there that we could access. And so things started happening there. And that was the first time that I realized that we could take this thing somewhere. Um, yeah, at that time. So what, like, what were you, obviously you thought that you could take, take this thing somewhere. Like, what were you thinking? Where were you thinking that you could take it? Well, ironically, we, we got a phone call from the league. Now, and, I, and I'm a little sketchy as to whether the league had now separated from Basketball England or not. I'm not quite sure. I was going to say, this, this must think... be around the time that the BBL was starting, right? Because the BBL, yes, the BBL must... was 86, right? Oh, right? Right, OK. So this would have been 88, okay. maybe. Something like that, or 89 at the worst, maybe. And, and I think there was a clause somewhere in a contract somewhere that said that... Um, if the BBL ever got less than eight clubs, it would return to Basketball England. Ah. So I believe there was a clause of some sort around that time. So um, I got a phone call and said, uh, you know, would you guys be interested in coming into the BBL? And I think we'd finished third that year in the league uh, or thereabouts. And I'm thinking, oh, right, OK. Uh, and I said, yeah, sure, we would be. <laughs> You're just off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. So I went back to talk to Roy and Paul. And they went, no way, we can't possibly do that. We're going to have to be, you know, traveling up and down the country midweek. We haven't got anywhere to play and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, hang on. You just identified three or four things. Let's see if we can address it. You know, I said, they've just built this new arena down the road, which at the time was the Docklands Arena in, in London Docklands. I said, why don't we go and talk to those guys? We might be able to play there and let's see what happens. So because obviously I was, a, I was in my filming mode. Um, I wasn't employed nine to five by somebody. I, you know, I went on jobs and contracts, so I had some time on my hands during the summer. So I, I, I moseyed on down to the Docklands Arena and asked who the owner was. And they ushered me into an office with um, Frank Warren, the boxing promoter. Okay. And uh, he, he was an amazing guy. And he said, basketball, you know, geez, not in my arena, you know. <laughs> was like, well, look, you know, this is a good time for basketball. I, I, I don't know what I said to him. But anyway, he said, okay, yes, you can. Uh, you can have the venue. He said, I won't charge you for the first 10 games and they will make a nominal charge after that. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Is there anywhere else I can go for sponsorships? And he said, yeah. He said, you can talk to the London Development uh, Corporation. They might help you. And I went to see them and they provided us with a coach for travel for all our away games. <laughs> um, so I showed up at practice the next evening and I said to the guys, yeah, listen, we've got an arena. We've we got a coach. we got this. we got that. You know, it's uh, hilarious. And... Um, and uh, so we got accepted into the, into the BBL. And uh, wow. so obviously we brought Daryl. <laughs> that, that was it. We were you, you, were, did you, you didn't have an ownership stake at this point? Uh, no, I didn't. We did, I don't think we even thought. <laughs> I don't think we even thought like that. It was just these three guys and who were just trying to do this thing, you know. And uh, no, there was, I just certainly didn't sign any paperwork or own anything. Um, and we played our first game at the Ducklers Arena in the little corner. We had about a thousand people in there. We played Solent, I remember, uh, in our very first game. Um, I'd spent, obviously, it was, our, it was the first game of the season, and I'd spent so much time trying to set this thing up. I was exhausted, and I just sat on the bench. Um, <laughs> we played that game. Sam Stiller played with us then as, an Amer as a British player, point guard. And as I say, Daryl ended up scoring, I think Daryl Richo scored 48 points in that game. Wow. And um, I ended up playing two minutes, scoring the winning basket by one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fairy. So every time I see Daryl Rishaw, I have a little rib about that. <laughs> fairy tale start. Fairy tale start. But then, um, you know, so that that was 
um, we were still, I'm trying to, yeah, so of course we were called London Docklands at that point. We changed our name from Tower Hamlets to London Docklands. Um, and, and, and is that your full name? Did you, did you have a nickname as well, or was it just London Docklands? That was it. No, it was just London Docklands. Okay. There's some, you know, I've, I've actually still got the uniform hanging around somewhere, and there's some pictures out there of this. We got sponsorship from Converse. They provided us with shoes, uniforms, all that kind of stuff. And, and actually, we were. This is, you know, you asked the question about about sponsorships and local people, and so I suddenly realised, hang on a minute, I could actually go and see some people, and they could see value in what we were giving them. You yeah. know, so actually, we, we we got loads of stuff sponsored. Was it easier to you get know. sponsorship back then compared to now? Yes, most most definitely. Really, most definitely. I uh, I um, I read a book by John Spoelstra. John Spoelstra is the father of uh, the coach at the Miami Heat, um, and um, he's one of the greatest sports marketers uh, in the world. Um, one of his famous books is uh, "Sending Snow to the Eskimos," right. um, and and I learned through that book. How to sell sponsorship? I mean, so so ironically, some of the filming I'd been doing had, had started leaning towards advertising and, and, and TV commercials. So in a sense, this really began to help me. But reading that book and meeting John Spurlock as I did in the states some years later really fired me up as to what how you could sell basketball and the sport that we were trying to take forward. So with like say like a Converse, like how, how did it actually go? You you, you know you just you you looked up their contact details and you called them up and just said, oh you know I've Literally. got a basketball team. We've got yep. a th- we've got a thousand people coming to our games. Can you yep. give us anything? And then they would say yes. <laughs> yeah, they say, "What do you need?" I would tell them what we need, and sure enough, these boxes would appear with you know all the kit and everything we required. Wow, and, you know, literally, and, and and you could find the person. You could actually find whoever it was. Yeah, and then compa- comparing that now <laughs> to today, like what what is the the modern day process? You know, with the lines, uh, if you're trying to get a sponsorship deal and you maybe target a specific company, like how do you go about it? Like um, yeah. Well, whew, it is so difficult. I'm just trying to see if I can find an example. I mean, um, I mean, fortunately, at the moment, we have a sponsorship with Motorpoint, the largest car supermarket in the in the country. Yeah. Um, but um, that just came about by accident. I happened to drive past um, the. I realized that I, I was reacquainting myself because obviously I, I live in Milton Keynes, and I and the Copper Box is obviously in East London. So I, I spent a lot of time in the car, traveling backwards and forwards, and I drove past. Um, a car showroom, which ended up being about 25 minutes away from the copper box. And I had to, you know, you got to rearrange your your sphere of of influence, if you like, in terms of when you're in London. London is so different to everywhere else in the country. So I thought to myself, well, 25 minutes away, that's not bad. That's still London. And I went in there to see the guys, and they said, no, we can't do any such thing. But by speaking to them, I realized I found out their own chain of operation. I found out how they were set up, you know, how they have dealerships in clusters, and those clusters are in regions, and those regions report to the marketing director centrally in Derby, and so on and so forth. So I forced my way all the way through. and actually found out that the guy who, who did the marketing, head of marketing for them there, actually was a sports nut. Right. Um, and, and, and as a result, I was able to do that. But that's, that's a large company. That's a, a company on the stock exchange. It's over a 100 million pound company. But there is still somebody there in that marketing department who cares for sport. Yeah. Um, but and that's but that's motor point you know that's not nike that's not um yeah. you know barclays bank you know it's, yeah. it's 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 difficult it's difficult so then your um i mean like i said uh, before we kind of jump on the call i do want to focus on on the lines now and kind of the day-to-day of of, of what's going on and, and the future and so but i would like to explain uh where it all started in terms of 
uh, where the, the London Lions, what the London Lions franchise started as all those years ago when you first got your hands on hands on it back in was it was it the late nineties? Um, yeah, that, it, it, well, the first franchise then officially that I took over was the Hemel Royals. Yeah, and I think that was ninety two ish, ninety two, ninety three. Okay. Um, I mean, just to close off on the on the Tower Hamlet scenario was, you know, uh, very quickly, we ended yeah. up having to leave the Docklands Arena because um, I don't know if you remember, Frank Warren got shot by one of his own boxers. Right. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know. So everything everything got shut down. We ended up going back to the to the Newham Leisure Centre and changing our name back to Tower Hamlets. Uh, that's when Joe White then coached for us. Um, but then we were approached uh, by eventually the Marshall Group, who owned the London Towers. Uh, they approached us. Uh, while I was away filming, because I was no longer playing now, I was just filming around the place. And uh, I got a call from, from Roy and Paul saying that, listen, we've had an approach, Vince, to sell, to sell the club to these guys. They're very well placed. They know what they're doing, marketing orientated, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't want to sell because I still had this dream of a London team. Um, but the guys said we had to sell. Um, they voted to sell. So I remember sitting, the team made the final four. Uh, the, the, our, our team then made the final four at Wembley, ended up losing to Kingston. Uh, in the semi-finals, we had an all-English team that year, and um, I was sitting in the back of the stands with Roy and with Paul, and you know, like we did the deal with with the Marshals, signed their piece of paper to say everything belonged to them, and um, and the boys were happy to just sit there and and enjoy what was to come with the London Towers. But I was I, I, I was not interested because it was nothing to do with me any longer. So that's when I headed off to. I was told by my my fiance at the time to be my wife she said that she lived in the hemel hempstead area and she said she'd heard that there were some issues with the hemel hempstead team so i went and met the guy there in hemel hempstead and he had some debts and stuff and um and he wanted to leave so i did a deal with him for him to walk away um and i think in 92 or 93 i, I became the owner of the the hemel royals and that was the first time i had my own franchise that belonged to me solely um, in the BBL, um, from which to try and start to plan something, um, which obviously would eventually turn into the London Lions. So, in in terms of the uh, the figures, are you able to share like how much it would cost you to buy a, to buy a franchise back then? Uh, I, I don't know if there was any uh, you know figure to buy a franchise, but you know, all, all I, I mean, what I'd be prepared to say was you know the guy had debts in the region of ten thousand um, pounds, which I took on for him and paid him something as well to walk away. So it cost me a decent sum of money, shall I say. All right. So you got your hands on a franchise and then, and then kind of, um, what, yeah, like what, what happened next? What were your, what, were the, what was the goal? <laughs> the goal was to build this. So, so now I was really focused on this American thing. I was, so my, so my, having been over to the States, I'd met with John Sprostra at this time. I'd seen the NBA. It seemed so far away, but what I fell in love with was college and, and, and I wanted to build a BBL franchise at that time that was almost like a top-level college. Because if you go to a top-level college, um, everybody in that community cares about the team. Um, and all we're doing is substituting the word team for club. So you're not allowed to get paid in, in, in college, but obviously some of the guys have got no money. How are they going to eat? Blah, blah, blah. They get sent down to see Bob at the butcher, whose daughter went to the school, so all the food's taken care of. Go and see Phil, who runs the car showroom. You know, his mum used to go to the college, so she's provided you with a car, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's, I wanted to build this situation where the community would support the team. Right. And, and, and that's what I started to do. So, and then I began to raise a fair bit of sponsorship through, I mean, at that time, there was lots of these um, cable TV stations. 
So we had one in, in, in Hemel Hempstead called Tell Essential. They became our naming rights sponsor. Um, and because we were on TV every game, every game locally, I was able to get local sponsors on board for cars and, and so on and so forth. So that's what I was kind of doing. Although it was probably the worst time for me to set up a team, to be fair, because of, as I mentioned, the London Towers had just launched with bags of money. The London Leopards had just launched with bags of money. And um, trying to get all these young English players that I knew was now becoming very difficult because they could just go and sit on a bench at London Towers and get some money. And even if they weren't playing and there were squads of 20, they could get tracksuits out their ears, shoes, everything they needed. So it was yeah. very difficult to get English players to come and play for me. So at what point did you, you, you um, take the franchise to Milton Keynes? Well, after a, a couple of years at Hemel, uh, which was actually very good in terms of sales, um, I was told that the Decorum Leisure Centre where we played was going to be closed for a year for refurbishment. Um, so I said, oh, right, so where are we going to play? <laughs> they said, well, we don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, this was my first time finding out that people didn't really care about basketball. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. They said, well, you know, you can go away and come back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, they said you could go away and come back. This is the council. Um, so I looked around and I saw some facilities in Watford. I knew that the, the head of sport in the Watford Council was, was uh, interested in sport. So I, I got a meeting there. I, he introduced me to Graham Taylor, who was the manager of Watford Football Club. And I came up with this ridiculous plan where they could redesign the Watford Football Club uh, on the South Stand, which was decrepit at the time, and build an indoor 3,000-seater facility and reopen the entire south side of Watford Football Club. And, and this deal was approved by Elton John and, and Graham Taylor. And um, so in anticipation of that, we moved and became the Watford Royals, playing in the Watford Leisure Centre, waiting for us to sign off this deal to build this new facility. Um, unfortunately, that's the year that Watford won the championship to move into the Premier League for the first time. Um, so they called me in after they'd won the championship and said they weren't going to put the money aside for that. They were going to try and find some players and so on and so forth. Um, so that was the end of that particular dream but so. luckily I had a friend uh, who a lot of people know him and, and I've you know, never publicly credited him for moving me to Milton Keynes but John Atkinson the statistician oh really um, yeah he, 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 he because what was now happening was I was also I mean there's so much that was going on because Sky had now started showing games um, you know and uh, I, I had a job with Sky because at that time they wanted someone in the truck who knew basketball and knew TV and basically, at that time, there was nobody. Yeah. So I sat in front of the producer on every truck uh, live game, telling them what was happening, where to go with the cameras, what was <laughs> going to happen next, what the timeout meant, et cetera, et cetera. So I was doing that, you know, with Suzanne Dando and Kevin Cadle in the front uh, and myself in the back. Um, and it was in these trips, because John lives near me in, at the time, in, in, near Hemel. We used to travel up and down the motorway. And John knew we were having difficulties. And he said, well, you know, my, my mate's in Milton Keynes and uh, he's head of uh, sport there. They don't have any professional sports and they'd like to, you know, have someone ahead of what they hope to be a bid to bring a football club and build a stadium in Milton Keynes. And uh -huh. I said, yeah, I'll talk to anybody at that point. So they came to see me in Watford and I came to see them in Milton Keynes. And we arranged that uh, they were going to build this stadium for the football team. And they would build a 4,000 indoor arena stadium for the Milton Keynes uh, Lions, as it was going to be called at the time. And we signed that off and everybody agreed to that. And uh, we moved to Milton Keynes in uh, 1998. I have to ask this, because I've always wondered it. Yep. Why the Lions? Why the name Lions? Yes. <laughs> 
Well, I thought it was fairly straightforward because at the time we were called the Hemel Royals or slash Watford Royals, and our, sim our symbol was the lion because of the king of the jungle. And uh, so rather than move to Milton Keynes and become the Milton Keynes Royals, I thought, well, okay, we'll keep the link with the lion and just call it the lions. And at that time, everything was in short names, wasn't it? It was, you know, everybody was, you know, TCP or, you know, RNC. You know, so MKL seemed quite, quite good at the time. Okay. You know? I've always, so. I never, because I never, I'm like, why would, a, why would an English team call themselves the lions? I can't think of a, an English association with a lion. I could never work well, it's it the, out. It's the, yeah. It's the, it's the head of the, the lion. It's the lion. It's the, the, re, the royal. The oh, royal well, yeah. Lion. There's that royal link. Yeah. But I mean, like the read, like, because normally you have the, the team would, you know, a friend only pointed this out to me a few years ago. Because they were like, oh, the nicknames of a team is always based around an animal or a, or a mascot or whatever that's local to the area. And it, it right. never clicked. And then now I, and then I realized and I started looking at all the NBA teams and I was like, oh yeah, like Utah Jazz, you know, Utah's famous for the Jazz. Yeah, that's New right. New Orleans that's Pelicans, right. like all this stuff. And then it all kind of came together. And so then I started looking at all the British teams. <laughs> and, then, and of course, in the British teams, there's some really random names. And I always thought there that are, the, the, the Lions was the most random one. I was like, why the Lions? But now we know. Well, you know, we've actually got Warburton Safari Park around the corner. So we could, I could have said that, ah. but no, that was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It all makes sense now. So, uh, all right. So we, we've got a couple of big knowledge bombs from this conversation already. So that's uh, that's positive. So, so you were in you were in Milton Keynes. Um, yeah. You know, like again, I, I do want to get to Lions. So you were in Milton Keynes for how many years did you did you end up there in the end? Well, I, I was shocked myself to find out I was there for eighteen years. Right. Was it that long? Wow. It was that long. I couldn't believe it. You and know. Do you think you were, you, in, in the end you ended up moving to London because you couldn't find anywhere to play? And of course, you had this situation where you know you were playing in a shopping centre, you you played in a renovated warehouse, um, yep. and then you kind of ran out of options. And then and then the yes. sort of the move to London came. Like, do you think that if if it wasn't down to the facility situation, you'd actually still be in Milton Keynes? Oh no, no doubt, because that stadium is that four thousand seat arena is still there, sitting there empty. Really? You know, that I designed. I mean, um, in the end, they didn't want us to move in there. Um, so that was the plan. The plan was eventually to move into that facility. I, I said, whenever that facility is ready, let us know. We'll put a team together to win a championship and we'll move into the facility as champions. Um, uh, 2007, they told me it was going to be ready. I put a team together. I coached that team, as you know, to the, to the cup final and we won the cup final. And then they told us, no, you won't be moving in. But Why? Because, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to be sued by anybody. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my, my own personal opinion is, you know, the football team runs the city, runs the city of Milton Keynes. Right. And they just you didn't, know, and they didn't, what, and they didn't want a basketball team there? No, no. Because I found sponsors uh, who, who uh, I mean, we had more sponsorship in Milton Keynes than we've ever raised in London. Um, and I found sponsors who were prepared to pay for the completion of that facility up to two million pounds, wow. you know, um, and um, but they turned it down. So, uh, you know, we had no literally we had no option. You know, yeah. In fact, the worst case, I was standing. There's a big place in Milton Keynes near the shopping center. There's a big park, Cam Campbell Park. And I remember standing there on the grass one summer looking at the footprints of the um, the big top that they put there for the circus every summer. And I was trying to see whether or not the floor was even enough for me to put some wood down and build this thing permanently. And, and I remember turning around to my partner there saying, well, what am I doing? You know, and that's when I realized, really, we had really run out of options. Wow. So when you, when you realized that Milton Keynes was off the table, um, yeah. what, like, was London 
your first like were you thinking oh you know london's the place to go or, or was it an opportunity that arose were you looking at other places to potentially relocate was even yes. closing the franchise an option like what yeah like kind of what were the options that were on the table well i was under pressure to close the franchise because obviously you know people were putting pressure on me as to dates for fixtures and things like that yeah um but because i already had the experience of moving from from hemel there was always two other places i was always going to consider one was liverpool Okay. Because I knew the lay of the land, and there's so much basketball talent there, and they already had an arena there. Um, and the other was um, Cardiff. You know, um, Why I Cardiff? thought there was a well. There's an arena there, obviously, um, at the Cardiff where the ice hockey play, um, and every game would be Wales against England. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so I thought there was an angle there, in as much as you know how the Scottish team uh, have that. You know, so so I looked at those two possibilities. Um, I investigated the option in Cardiff. The problem with the Cardiff scenario is, you know, basically there are two factions there that control everything in in, in Cardiff, and I, I never thought I would be able to resolve their issues quick enough. Um, and Liverpool, the guy, obviously the Mersey Tigers were on the edge of becoming defunct at that point, um, and I approached the then owner and said I would come in with him fifty-fifty. Um, but then he wanted me to send my CV in and apply for the position. <laughs> so, right. so I left the conversation. Um, and then I was sitting on my bed at home, looking out the window distraught, because it wasn't just about the BBL team. You know, we had 16 teams below us. Uh, we had 1,400 kids playing basketball every week. Yeah. Um, we, 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 you know, we, we, were, we were huge. Um, really, really just upset about the whole situation um and of course it was approaching the 2012 olympics um and all i kept hearing on the radio and tv was you know 2012 and the olympics and 2012 and the olympics and i'm thinking to myself 2012 and the olympics there must be some facilities there <laughs> you know um there must be something surely you know so i started digging around and investigating to find out what facilities were going to be left around the olympics and I found out which ones were going to be left uh, and that two of them, in particular, the Aquatic Center and um, the Copper Box, were going to be managed by uh, GLL, right? Uh, the Greenwich uh, Leisure Limited, um, who I, I didn't really know much about them. So I, I made some contact with them. I spoke to someone on the ground at GLL and they were very excited to, at the possibility of having a, a basketball team there. They'd been told they couldn't have one. I don't know who by um, and um, I, I made an appointment to see the managing director. And within um, within five days, I had a ten year contract. Wow! So, so now, yeah, like explain the relationship with GLL. Like, how does have they actually got ownership uh, an ownership stake in the franchise? Uh, no, no, they don't have an ownership stake in the franchise. Um, GLL were a partner in just in terms of facilitating the use of the copper box and also in, re in, in reciprocal arrangement for us to then try and assist in the development of basketball in GLL facilities. So what, what, what is the benefit for GLL? Uh, the benefit is obviously to have um, an anchor tenant like ourselves. So we, you know, we're there for you know, 20 or 24 games a year. Uh, we pay a decent amount of money in rent. Uh, uh, we bring yeah. attention. Okay. We, we pay rent for the facility. Um, we have our own special rate and um, we bring people into the building and we bring people onto the site. Um, that's, that's the key aspect of the copper box. But also, don't forget, GLL do so many other sports. At so many, I think they've got something like 70 centres in London alone. 
Um, and and we, are, we assist in trying to get basketball growing in those centres as well. So you have a, you're still in this. So you're in the like. You, how many years are you into this ten year partnership with them now? Four, um, five. Well, we have five to go now. Okay, um, and and so with that, it gives you a discounted rate on the on the venue. Obviously, yeah. in return, you you know get eyeballs on their on their facility, bring people in. Yeah. We're hoping yeah. hopefully they get sort of future bookings. The thing the That's thing right. the thing with uh, GLO, you know, obviously I expect that you probably can't be too negative about them because you're in a partnership with them. But I find that their facilities, they do charge a lot of money. Like I've looked into like booking, you know, I've looked into booking the Copper Box. I've looked yeah. into booking Crystal Palace for my own uh, basketball events. And just, it becomes completely unaffordable. Um, yeah. And for yeah. me, it's like, they, obviously they have the GLL Foundation and stuff. Um, and it's this positioning of, you know, they're all about sport for all and, and health and, and all this kind of stuff. But their costs are completely prohibitive for anyone that's yeah. not a major corporation uh, to be able to book. And I just think that's absolutely insane. So it's, it's just a, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Um, yeah, I don't know whether you, whether you have any thoughts on that. Like, obviously you've dealt with booking facilities for a long time. Like, yeah, I mean, I think, I think facilities are, are the biggest thing that hold our sport back. There's no question. And I think that access for clubs is like, or events, like you just described, but also access at the grassroots level for kids who want to play. Yeah. Um, if you're under the age of 21, and you live in France anywhere, you can use any sports facility free of charge. Yeah. I mean, it's just criminal. But, uh, and I've said this to GLL myself many times, and I think that's something they're aware of, and, and they know it needs to be addressed. But I think, I, I just think, I mean, when we talk about the Lions and stuff like that, the costs, just the costs of being in London is ridiculous. Yeah. It, across the board. I mean, to, to, to find out that you need to pay £60 an hour to hire a, a basketball court is it, shocking. Yeah. You know, but in London, people, it just seems to be the norm. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what state the court is in. It's, it's 60 pound an hour minimum. Yeah. You know, and, and I find that, you know, difficult. With regards to the event side of things at the Copper Box, I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't know how things work out in terms of, if you look at the pre, other uh, Olympics and, and the fact that those facilities are standing there unused and you've got to try and make, a, a, an arena slash leisure center scenario, which is what we have at the Copper Box, work. Um, I mean, we haven't been able to practice at the Copper Box, for instance, for the last three weeks because they're massive events. The biggest gaming event in the country is taking place there for two weeks. Oh, really? Um, and I know they pay hundreds of thousands of pounds. So, yeah. so if I was Mr. GLL looking at this thing, I'm thinking, well, she's, you know, I've got all these guys that I'm encouraging to play sport, but I've also got, you know, the money that's going to make, we're going to make the money for the year out of these two weeks. I really have a difficult decision to make, and I wouldn't want to make that decision. But I understand that they have to make that kind of decision. Yeah, you know, it's tough. Have it's you tough. Uh, have you spent any time at all looking into the potential of building your own facility in London? Yes, I have, and I, and I have I have uh, designs drawn up already and stuff like that. Um, but building a facility in London isn't the difficulty. The difficulty is finding the land. Right. You know, that's the problem. I mean, you, you look at the size of land that you're going to need. Um, it's no less than 25 million. Really? You, you know, for the piece of land. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. building a facility, you can build, you can build a, a tensile facility for, for under three and a half million. You can build a facility like Leicester have for under six million. Um, you can sit, build an all singing, all dancing facility for eight. But you've got to find 20 to 25 for the land. Yeah. And the only way yeah. that's going to happen really is with, is with government funding, you reckon? Like, it would be very difficult <coughs> to find a private 
Oh, I feel like it would be yes. very difficult to find a private sponsor that would back that on the basis that they're going to get a return on their investment. It would be very difficult, and a lot would depend on where the location was. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure people have noticed. If you look around the places like train stations, you know, if you look at the big train stations in London, you, you see the buildings that are built on top of them. Now, there was a piece of land, albeit, uh, you know, a platform and bits of track and bits of land that nobody wants, really. <laughs> there was a piece of land that was pretty much useless 10 years ago. Yeah. And now it's probably one of the biggest real estate in London because people have suddenly realized, hang on a minute, we can now build over the top of this thing and we can build a 20-story office block and sell it out for 10 million. Yeah. So there's things like that that people didn't know about a few years back and now become the norm. So when you think about where that land could be and how valuable it could be, if you could find that piece of land that, and give that return in some other way that people haven't thought of, then you can get it done. But in, in London... To find that is a challenge, and, and, and that is the problem. And of course, you don't want to start if you're going to be London. You want to be as close to London, or, or set, you know, be, yeah. be, be in London as best you can. Talking about the, the the cost of being in London, and obviously that is a, I mean, there are positives and negatives to it. Uh, do you have any regrets about making London the option that you came to instead of instead of Liverpool or, or Cardiff? Um, no, I don't. I think Cardiff would have been difficult. Um, I think Liverpool would have been worth a try, but uh, you know there was somebody else's franchise there, so it wasn't possible. So, do I regret that? No, no, I don't regret it at all. I mean, I'm getting used to what it means to be in London. I've I've been on a learning curve that's been unbelievable. So, I, I feel I've learned a lot, um, and and I know, in as much as it's very expensive to be in London, but by the same token, there are people there who will pay to come and watch you play because this is one of the biggest challenges we have in our sport. And I mentioned earlier in my conversation around the Hemel facility and so on, and people not caring about our sport. But very few people want to pay to watch our sport. Yeah. Um, we've got some unbelievable athletes, some unbelievable talent. I believe we have the best British player in the country at the moment in Justin Robinson. Yeah. And there are still people out there, basketball people, who won't pay to come and watch him play. Um, and you've got to ask the question, why? Because they'll pay a lot of money to go and watch some other people do other things. Why not basketball? Uh, why, do you you, know? why do you think that is? I think that um, I have a theory in my mind that is not fully formed yet, but I have a theory in my mind that we like to be we, we like to beat ourselves. You know, we like <laughs> we like we like to beat ourselves up uh, in our sport. You know, very. I mean, we we watched the GB game the other day, and uh, you know, again that we should have won uh, against a team we have no right beating. It doesn't matter what they look like on the floor. You know, those guys playing for Greece. Uh, their, you know, their paychecks and their value on the on, on, on the books, you know, is ten times those that were wearing the GB vest. So we, on paper, financially, we had no no business competing with that crew, but we did compete with that crew and had the opportunity to win that game. And still, people are complaining about this and complaining about that and complaining about the other. So we will find any excuse to beat ourselves up until the day comes when we value our basketball people. I watch my guys practicing. I watch what they do. Over the years, I've done the same. I, I've watched all the other teams play. I know every player in this league inside out. And I really appreciate what I see in front of me. And we should be singing that song everywhere. Instead, we run ourselves down. We, you know, we say our players can't do this. We say our players can't do that. And players abroad are better and this and that. And that's why there's that. Because if everyone in basketball went to watch a basketball game this weekend, all basketball clubs would be so much better off. Yeah, see, see, I I see that argument, but I also I also feel like if the market's not willing to pay for it, it's because the product's not good enough. 
And if the product's not good enough, then that's on that's on the people that are producing the product to make it better, to make it so that to, even if it, even if even if it's just about the perceived value of it, right? If British basketball yes. d- doesn't have the perception of value right now, then it's on the league and it's on the teams and it's on the you know the marketing people to change that. Um, I don't yeah, yeah like it's, I, I, it's I, a no, hard no, one think, to blame on the market, you know. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. I'm not blaming the market. I'm blaming our sport. I'm, and I'm not blaming, by the way. I'm not blaming. I'm not a guy yeah, who yeah. blames. I'm not blaming our sport. I'm just saying that we should value it. I mean, I look around, and I, I mean, we've got a game going on in Australia, and um, all I'm being told is how it's one of the greatest competitions in the world. You know, um, and I know the cricket players that are playing now are not as good as ones who were playing five years ago. I know that. Yeah. But I'm not a cricket person. But I know cricket people are all getting behind it. Yeah. And if cricket people get getting all behind it, everybody else starts to take notice. And I think within basketball, we should do a bit of that. You yeah. know, and for instance, I'll give you an example. For years, every time we prepare a match night program and we say um, Ramon Fletcher from Newcastle is coming to play. This guy is unbelievable. He's this. He's that. He's the other. Blah, blah, blah. I go elsewhere. They never talk about the opposition. Yeah. Then, so, so I'm like, well. If you don't care about the opposition, why should your fans care about the opposition? If they, don't know if, they don't know if your opposition is good, bad, or indifferent. You know, yeah. if the all-conquering Newcastle Eagles or the all-conquering Leicester Riders or whomever it may be come to play you, tell your people who they are. Oh, yeah, for sure. There needs to be. I actually, it's funny you mentioned John Atkinson because I, I interviewed him for an earlier episode of the podcast, which we're going to be releasing very soon. Uh, and And on that, we spoke about this whole the documenting side of things and talking about the history and, and actually without without context it's very hard for anyone to yes. recognise what they're watching. Um and and yeah, and that that is about describing both teams rather than one and giving the history of the meet the match up between the teams and kind of what yeah. happened last yeah. time and all that stuff. And it's what it the narrative is what makes it exciting and what, what gets people engaged. Um yes. yeah, I'd be interested to hear kind of your you know I I've been obviously I've been to a few uh, London Lions games over the years. I, I live down the road in in uh, in Plasto, and uh, it seems that you've always struggled. Well, you you have struggled to fill the copper box. So oh, seems, yes. like uh, and you know I mean to sell five thousand tickets every single week is no small task, uh, of course. Um, in terms of the connection with the fans and building the fan base in London, uh, where do you think the Lions can improve? Where do you think that? Uh, maybe you haven't been as successful as you expected to be. Has it been? Has it been more difficult than you expected it to be? Um, sort of to build that regular fan base that come to every single game. Yes, it has. It has been more difficult than I expected to be. Um, and and so we've spent the last two years in particular trying to understand who our fans actually are. Um, I think um, you've got different types of fans. I believe uh, London is a transient environment. Um, imagine if you were standing on, on, on in Stratford and you looked in towards central London. You see all these people there, but really they're very transient. They're not, they haven't necessarily got roots down. They're in and out, blah, blah, blah. But if you turned around and faced Essex and, and that area, you've got people there who actually live there, irrespective of where they work, who could potentially be your regular audience, but they're not a London, London audience. They're a different kind of audience. So, so we're trying to get this balance between... Who, who our audience actually is and what is it that they actually want. Um, number one has to be a successful team. Yeah. That's the number one thing is to have a successful team in London, rather like in New York, desperate for a successful team. So really, uh, I mean, it, I mentioned John Spurlstra before, and, and he said you didn't need to have a winning team in his marketing concepts. He had, you have to be able to win 
Uh, sorry, your, your fans have to believe you have the possibility to win 50% of your home games. On that basis, you can sell out your building on season tickets. Okay. Now, that's his philosophy. And that's the philosophy I followed all the years. I don't think that philosophy works in London because I just think it's a different type of audience that we're trying to attract. And so we've gone back to stripping everything back down. We're working with some consultants at the moment about what the narrative is and try to do it in a completely different way uh, is what we're trying to do now. We're trying to look around engagement with celebrities. We're trying to look about inviting different types of people down, ambassadors to talk about the sport, that kind of thing. But also at the same time, we're also trying to win. Yeah. So I have a theory that I'd like to put to you and see what you think about it. Um, yeah. I think that uh, the London Lions would potentially have more success drawing a fan base if uh, they were named regionally. So if they were like the East London Lions or the North London Lions or whatever it was, because then it's right. like a certain subset of people will be able to say, that's my team. No one, like, if I go to, if I go to like, a, let's say I go to a concert or, 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 or a comedy show in London or whatever it is, it's never, the question is never asked to the audience, who's from London? It's always, if you're from East London, if you're from South London, put your I hands see. up. You know what I mean? People, people associate, yes. people yes. Associate, and there's yes. competition between the different areas yes. of London. And that's why, like, you know, you look back at Rough and Ready in, in the early 2000s of or course. whatever. It was because yep. it was East versus North versus West versus South. Yeah. And yep. I feel like you would have more potential, have more success uh, with building a connection, and of course, it would then it would it would it would reduce the size of your audience, right? Because all of a sudden, you're 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 effectively quartering the the, yes. re the reach um, of what you would have if you're if you go broad. But actually, those that twenty five percent, you would get a much higher percentage uh, actually coming to the games and associating themselves with the team. Was there a particular reason yes. that you chose to go broad and say we're London's team. So I can see there's there's obviously massive value when you go to sponsors when you say we're London's only yes. professional basketball team. Um, yes. But I wonder whether yeah, I'd just be interested to hear whether you have any thoughts uh, about going regional as opposed to going broad. Yeah, broad. Yeah. Um, there was, no, there wasn't. Uh, I am I'm aware of that. I'm I'm aware of what you said there in terms of North London, East London, and so on. Um, in a way, initially, I guess I thought I wanted everyone to come under that London banner. Yeah. initially that was my view i thought that could bring people together um i, I mean there's <clears throat> there is a lot of basketball in london and i thought if i mean let's just say for instance let's say we were the east london lions for instance yeah. um what would the teams the basketball teams and so on in west london or south london feel about that would they say oh, okay well that's not for us that's for them um and in my mind i thought well actually if it was the london lions then maybe those guys could all come under the same umbrella and come to us um, that that was my initial thoughts. Uh, obviously, should another team show up in London, then obviously those those things may need to be to be looked at. But yeah. um, but I mean, you have a, you have a point there. There's definitely a, there's, for sure. There's an angle to be said around around that kind of of separation. Um, but I just thought overall, especially with my long term ambitions being to go into Europe, I thought it would be more important to be London going to yeah. play against Paris or Barcelona or whomever. Um, rather than East London. And I guess, I guess, uh, I mean, back in the day, London Towers and London Leopards didn't really have an issue with being no, broad, right? No, um, so no, it has, been, right. it has been done. Uh, but yeah, so you mentioned Europe. Of course, we have to talk about Europe because that is the, the topic that uh, is constantly brought up these days with, with no British team having competed in Europe in however long, well over a decade, I think now. Um, yeah, 13 years now, yeah. So, 
yeah, like London Lions ambitions. We know that uh, you know Peter Sprogius has invested, and he was yep. he invested on that basis that sort of uh, Europe was the goal. Um, yeah. You know, I think that you've come out publicly and spoken about Europe being the goal. Where yeah. where are you in that journey? You know, I, I know that every British team says that they want to do it, but they're not going to do it until they're ready. They don't want it to be a situation where they're bankrupting themselves. Um, yes. So yes. kind of yeah, how how are you approaching it, and kind of where where are you at um, with potentially making that leap? Well, I mean, the, there's a number of things. And obviously, getting someone like Peter with his expertise and financial backing on board was one of the first things we needed to achieve, which we've obviously been able to achieve. Then it was a case of trying to put a competitive team on the floor to be able to win a, a trophy in, in the BBL. Because obviously, you know, we would want to win a trophy before we, uh, before we went into Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you look at the makeup of our team this year, what we've done, we've tried to already start making steps in that direction. So we've got very much an international team. We've tried to bring some couple of our best British players back. Um, technically, you could argue that, you know, we would need to add maybe two more players to this squad, maybe to be able to have a chance of venturing into Europe on the floor. Um, and we spent some time, uh, you know, as you know, we've had pre-season the last two seasons in, in, in Poland to try to get used to playing against those European teams. We've got trips already this year, a couple of trips that where we're going to visit teams and look at the operations behind the scenes on, on midweek games around the European situation. Um, so we're learning is, is what I can say at the moment. Obviously, we need to be able to, to win something. So that's our goal this season, to win something. Um, and then... We're also talking about, you know, looking at the brands that we can attract to the London Lions to assist us in that journey. Because I think if we were able to make that step, it would open up a whole different audience to us. The, the non-Indigenous audience in London that don't really know what our basketball, as in British basketball, means because they don't understand the fact we're not in any of those European competitions. Um, when I talk to Lithuanians and Polish guys at the train stations in and around London, they love basketball and they say, you have a team, what league are you in? And I explained the BBL and I said, no, no, what league are you in? You know, Champions League, Euro Cup. And I said, no, we're not in any of those. They think, well, what's that? So we can't engage with those guys until we can, we can put a step across, across the border. So that first step is to, is to win something this year. If we win something this year, then we're 90% to where we want to go. So if you, if you were to win something this season, do you think then it's very likely that you try to make the jump next season? It is, yes. And it if, is. You, if you don't win something, then that is it makes that very much less likely. Yeah, it makes it less likely, not because we don't want to do it, but less likely as in, well, you didn't win anything. Where are you going? Who are you? Of course, the team we may put together may be completely different next year, in which case that argument maybe doesn't hold. But obviously, you know, you're supposed to be winning something. And, you know, you should be consistent in your own league, I would say, yeah. um, before you start to step out. And conversations that you've had with European leagues, I mean... Uh... Are we talking basketball Champions League is the most likely? Yes. I mean, that's where we'd like to go. I mean, that's where we would like to go. I mean, a lot depends also on on the amount of games. I mean, if you said, let's just say, you know, the cost involved in putting the kind of team for European competition, you can't do that just to play two games. Yeah. Uh, You need some sort of, you know, <clears throat> you need some sort of, uh, I don't want to say guarantee, but you need some sort of a plan that says, well, listen, next year we are in Europe and we are playing 10 games. Well, OK, then that investment is is worth it. Yeah. You know, but is that investment, you know, you don't want to be signing the team then to see what happens and then break the team up and have another team because we're not in Europe after two games or, or whatever, you know. Um, these are some of the challenges that we have in England, which obviously the European clubs don't seem to, to have that issue. Um, for us, that's that's a big consideration because if we're going to invest in 
you know, let's say, I mean, let's just let's put a let's be in a land of wishing, and we were to sign Joel Freeland to come and play in Europe next year. What are we doing? Are we signing him on a game by game basis, or are we signing him for the season? And is it done after two games? You know, what ways your finance? How have yeah. you planned that? Right. So those those are difficult issues to to get around. When you're talking about cost of going into Europe, um, can you give us like a ballpark figure of the extra money that you would need to come up with to be able to to be able to do, uh, you know, let's say the basketball Champions League for a season? Well, um, I, I, there's a you know there's a ballpark figure that tells you that forget about what's on the floor, but just in terms of operationally doing what you want to do, there's going to be a cost of circa fifteen to twenty thousand pounds per game. Right. Um, whether that involves you traveling over there with your entourage and then being looked after once you arrive or looking after them when the minute they step on our shores. Yeah. Um, you know, the two, two day hires of the copper box, et cetera, hotels, that kind of thing. So if you give you the, the additional cost of referees, you know, referees can be, you know, 5,000 pound a game in totality. Um, so, and that's where you London, would, London, you're at a disadvantage by being in London because the cost of everything when they come to you is way more expensive, <laughs> right? It certainly is, you know. I mean, I always give the example that, you know, if I put my players in a three-bedroom house in Stratford, it's going to cost me £2,400 a month. But if I did that in Newcastle, it's going to cost me £500 a month. Yeah. You know. Um, crazy. So, yeah, there are, there are those issues. So, so using that ballpark figure of circa fifteen to 20000 per game, um, that will tell you that if you play 10 games and you're looking at between 150 and 200,000 on, on top of your existing budget just to play those games before you decide on what the quality of the team is that you want to put out there. Yeah. yeah it's not you cheap. Know, so, no. So you could look around you now and say, let me look at this London Lions roster and I wanted to add Gabe Olaseni and Matthew Bryant to that team um, to give us a chance of playing in Europe. Um, that, that's going to be a huge, a huge expense on the, on the team as well. Yeah. But if you're not doing that, then how are you going to be competitive? Yeah, well, there's almost there's almost no point going to. Well, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear whether you think that is there is there any point going into Europe if you're just going to go and get battered every single game, or do you think it's it's only worth doing if you're going to be challenging uh, for wins? You've got to be challenging for wins, no question. But I don't think we're far away from challenging for wins. I mean, we have played European teams this year, and, and we, you know we're not too far away from them. So yeah. um, I don't think there's any. I don't think. Well, whether it's us or Leicester or Newcastle, I don't think we'll be struggling to find wins. I think we'll find we'll be in positions to win. Whether we can actually learn to win might be a different issue, but we'll certainly be in positions to win, I believe. Um, and I think, you know, looking at, like I said, looking at our squad, speaking for ourselves, um, yeah, you would add one or two more big players onto the team and you certainly would be competing for wins, no, no doubt. In terms of the, you know, your Newcastle Eagles and Leicester Riders and... You know, other clubs that are potentially having one eye on Europe. How much collaboration takes place between the different franchises? Like, are you talking amongst yourselves and uh, potentially seeing whether there's ways that you can help each other uh, when it comes to uh, assessing the European situation, or is it very much, you know, every every man for himself? Well, <clears throat> it's been every man for himself, but. Uh, but as, as it gets closer, then there's, there's becoming a bit more collaboration because, I mean, if let's just say, let's say Leicester were to go into Europe, you know, they, they would want support and, and we would want to support them in any way that we could, whether it be not so much in terms of the competitive nature, obviously, but in terms of the other stuff off the floor, you know, how can we help them in terms of where the player, their, their teams may fly into? How can we help them around the, the, the media marketing aspects of things like that? So that side of, of things, I think, would be very much an easy step for us um, in terms of what we're paying for 
uh, what do you have to pay for, what the, the cost looks like. Look like We talk about those things. I talk about that. Obviously, myself and Russell Levinson go back a long way. Um, and we talk about that all the time. Newcastle, obviously, there's a venue issue for them currently um, with the venue they're at. So maybe theirs is not as close as they'd like it to be. Um, so, so with Russell, you know, we talk a lot. Yeah. I would like that you mentioned that when you know when you're in Milton Keynes, um, you know, you had 16 junior teams or whatever it was, and you kind of you were very much uh, in right in in the middle of the community. Um, in London, obviously, that's a much that's a much harder thing to do. Uh, yes. You know, in terms of growing the club and having you know all of the the different strands underneath it, you know, the junior program, the women's program, you know, you partnered with Barkin Abbey this year. Um, yeah. Kind of how, how are you approaching that and, and how do you see it all coming together? Well, it's interesting because obviously we're doing this the wrong way around because normally if you were building something, you'd build from the bottom up, which yeah. is what we did in Milton Keynes. Um, but now we have to be, we're forced to build it from the top down. Um, so when we first arrived in London, it, you know, we didn't want to be going out there and setting up an under-14s National League junior program when there are five National League under-14s teams within a stone's throw of the copper box. Yeah. Um, so it didn't make any sense. So, and I think initially, you know, people just, you know, in basketball, people are very parochial and keep things, try to keep things, you know, to themselves and not share, not be part of anything. Um, I think, I, I think we've, what we've then decided to do is open our doors to anybody who wants to get involved with us in any level whatsoever. So, you know, I'm pleased to say that at this point in time now, we have something like 11 junior teams. So what we, we've got a, a Lions Club ethos where we try and partner with other clubs existing. Um, and the first people we partnered with was Caroline Charles at, at, uh, at the Youngbloods. Yeah. So, you know, the boys and girls teams there at under 14s, 16s and 18s are all Lions teams. So they all play in the same uniforms as the Lions. We try and get some games played at the Copper Box before the men. Um, we've grown that through now to the Tower Hamlets Lions, to the Reigns Lions, uh, the Wright Development Lions in Barking. Um, so there are those teams there playing. Um, what we then have just above that is we have the two academies. Obviously, I, I work personally with the Hackney Community College, and we've also now got the Epping Forest uh, College Lions with us. Um, so we've got five teams within those two colleges who are playing under-19s under uh, AOC yeah. uh, basketball. Um, so we've got a route for young kids to go if they want to attend uh, college, if they're not going to sixth form and so on. Um, we have a partnership with, uh, at the moment with the University of East London, which we're growing at the moment and trying to grow into. Um, we have two scholarship players currently with us. Joey Kimwin is doing his master's degree at UEL, um, as is Jack Eisenberger. So we have a close collaboration with what's happening at UEL, and we hope that that can be an option for our young players age 19, 20, who, who don't want to go to college in the States or who can't go to college in the States or for whom that is not an option. Um, and then, of course, with, with having an elite basketball across the road with Barking, um, with the women coming on board now, that's a huge step for us. It, it, and we're, when we're getting to know each other and we're working together around that, and we hope that maybe we can get some of the men involved next year at the various levels, and then really try to tighten up. And if people feel that... that Actually, rather than just seeing the Lions as another basketball club, if they can see the Lions as a conduit to, to, to echo what they're doing and, and, and accentuate what they're doing, that will help all of us. Yeah. You, know, um, I, you know, I don't have to go and run another junior team or go and run another team over here. There's people already running them. We can help facilitate and, and, and push that thing forward. And then, 
you know, that belonging, you know, if people don't belong to something, why would they care about it? You know, so they, they need to belong to it in some way. And if they feel that they're actually invested in that, you know, does Justin Robinson go down to one of the young blood sessions and, and teach the guards? You know, does one of our big guys go down to, to barking and work with some of the guys at barking or, or whatever? I mean, those kind of things are where we start to grow. And those are the things that were easier to do in a small town like Milton Keynes. Yeah. But it's more difficult to do in a place like London. But it is now really gaining momentum. So when we're talking about figures and stuff, uh, when I spoke to I spoke to uh, Paul Blake and, and both Kevin Routledge and, and they were discussing uh, how much their clubs were turning over or rough, just sort of rough ballpark figures and then the split between actually what's coming in directly from the professional, from the professional side of things and then what's yeah. coming in from the community side of things. Are you able to yeah. share anything for us, uh, with us, uh, in terms of the Lions and the sort of the numbers behind it, the financials, in terms of what the club is turning over, what percentage is coming from the the actual professional club and the, and and you know game nights, and what is coming from sort of the community side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly common knowledge that you know to run a BBL franchise right off the bat, it's going to be anywhere between four hundred and five hundred thousand mm. pounds. Um, you're not going to get much change out of that at the minimum. So. That that's kind of what clubs have to raise every year. Um, for us in uh, in London, ironically, I mentioned to you that we had more sponsors in Milton Keynes. So, so I'll give you an yeah. example. In uh, before I break it between community and the club itself, but in in Milton Keynes, you know, sponsorship was probably eighty percent of our income, and and gate attendances were twenty percent of our income. Um, whereas in London, that's almost flipped over. Wow. whereby we're only probably getting 30% uh, as a sponsorship income and um, 70% uh, of, of, of uh, game night stuff from our attendance income. Wow. Um, so it's a completely different area, and, but then showing you the, the, the potential for growth. Um, in terms of community overall, the community is probably providing 30%, I would say, of our overall income. Yeah. Um, and that is obviously an area that is, you know, this year in particular has grown a lot and is going to continue to grow. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what what the picture kind of looks like there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say about uh, Milton Keynes actually being easy to raise sponsorship. I have exactly the same conversation with my brother-in-law. He runs a he runs a, tri <laughs> a, a, tri a triathlon, and it's it's the East One Triathlon. Big shout out to him because they just won England Triathlon of the Year this year. But he wow. uh, he runs it in Eastbourne, and and uh, so I speak to him about you know my own basketball event and kind of what and. And I've always felt like, oh, I need to be in London because, you know, the brands that I speak to and stuff, a lot of them, it's very important that it's in London. Yes. But actually, I see with him doing something local, he's embraced by the community in a way that you're just, it just doesn't yep. happen in London because London is just, it's just so big. You're just another, you're just another tiny thing that's happening because so many things Absolutely. happen all the time, right? So in, in, in Eastbourne, he gets, he gets, you know, a load of press coverage in the local press. He might get local news stations coming down. He gets sponsorship from all the local businesses. Um, and it does make me think there's, there's actually value sometimes in going outside of London to smaller places where, well, yeah, like you said, Definitely. you can actually raise more Definitely. money. Um, no, I know that firsthand. I mean, I, I mean our biggest sponsors in, in uh, Milton Keynes were the Marshall Amplification, yeah. uh, who build the Marshall Amps. And, and, you know, you talked about where they might come from. Well, you know, their factory is in Milton Keynes, in Bletchley. Yeah. Yeah. So... But not only that, they can mosey on down on a Saturday or Sunday or Friday to the games, and they can see the kids playing beforehand, and they can so they can actually see what they're involved in. Yeah, you know, and the local paper reports it. I mean, you know, who, who even reports in a newspaper in London? Nobody. Yeah, you know, nobody. I mean, if it's not Premier League football, it's not anywhere. Yeah, you know, so 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 at the end of every season, I would have a four-inch thick 
press clippings of of the lions, yeah. you know, in in Milton Keynes. But in London, it's like, well, what newspaper is that? It's not going to be in the Standard. Yeah. Where, where is it going to be? Yeah. You know, and even your local newspapers, your New York Recorders, and all these kinds, you know, they're they're pressed for space. They they barely have two people in their office. Yeah. You know, so it's a whole different kettle of fish. It's all all change. Don't you think that then I'm going back to my theory about going local? Like, if you were to if you were to call yourself, you know, Newham something or Stratford something or East London something, it would then help with all that side of things because then you'd be able to tap into all that local business. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like that would be the thing to do, but I but I think the local in London isn't the local that I'm describing, if you like. So, yeah. so, so if, if, you see what I mean? So the local yeah. in London is really local. I mean, yeah. I'll give you, I mean, we talked about Caroline and the, and the Youngbloods, and Caroline is a tireless worker for basketball and, and has been known as, as Newham all, all her time. But, you know, her school won't even allow her practice and, and, and play games at the school anymore. And yeah. that's a local group in a local school, in a local council. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're not interested. If it doesn't tick the boxes initially, and it's not something that's going to help someone get elected. They are not interested. And I'm, I'm very cynical about, excuse me, but I'm very cynical about, you know, um, you know, local government workers because I just believe that they're just moving things around. They don't actually necessarily care for what's happening. I know every day when I see some of these youngsters that we work with, I know the difference that has had. We've, <clears throat> we've got a young kid on the bench at the moment with the men's team who came through Hackney Community College, spent a year in college in the States, and, and it doesn't work for him. So if it's not for us, given this young 20-year-old a position to sit on a BBL bench and practice and get ready to play, he's going to be lost in the cracks because he hasn't necessarily got the skills to go and take care of himself. Um, and, and there's tons of guys like this. And, and yet this kid is bristling with talent, but it just, it's just not got the support structures around it to make it really work for him. Yeah. You know, and, and so I get really I'm really mad about some of the local lo, local council, local stuff that goes on because it's just lip service. It's not actuality. And whereas really we are seeing boys and girls for me, predominantly boys every day that I know this game's changed what they're about to do. Yeah. The, uh, in terms of the marketing side of things, um, yep. I've seen conversations on Twitter before. I can't remember who it was, but some, you were going back and forth with someone, and they were talking about, uh, you know, why isn't there why isn't there more of a presence of the London Lions locally, like especially like Westfield Stratford, which you know has a ridiculous footfall. <laughs> um, and I saw you go back, and you said you kind of had those conversations. I've actually, I you know, I, I walked through there a lot, and I've I have since. Uh, seen some fo- some photos of Joe uh, and some yep. promotions on the on the the big boards uh, out the front yes. at the front there but otherwise yes. you know internally there isn't a lot of stuff going on um but yeah what's no. what's the situation with that yeah that's it's interesting and obviously um you look at Stratford now and it, it looks like a thriving place and i think people forget what it was like i mean our first year in Stratford i mean cracky if i bumped into you on the way there it would only be me and you there yeah. <laughs> you know i mean but the place has grown now when we first approached uh, Westfield and talked about, you know, doing uh, stands outside and having players and cheerleaders walking up with leaflets and so on, they said, yeah, no problem. We're happy for, for you to do that. It'll be £8,000 a day. Um, so that's what they priced it at. Um, and they wouldn't budge on that for the first four years that we were there. Um, what we were able to do this year is we've, we've signed, you know, close to a million pound deal at the moment with a company called Ocean uh, Graphics. And they are the ones who actually run those screens that you see. Okay. Um, so we've got something in the region of a hundred thousand pound a month worth of advertising across all ocean screens in Westfield, uh, Canary Wharf, and Central London. Um, 
So when you come out of Stratford Tube Station, there's that giant uh, horizontal screen in front of you. Yeah. Um, on the big bridge from Old Stratford to New Stratford, there's two there. Um, and then there's stand-up ones in the street in Westfield with, you know, regularly Justin occupies most of that space alongside Andy Murray. Um, that's a deal that we've been able to do about about two months ago, and that's a, an ongoing deal. So that's had a major impact for us in terms of attendance in the last two games. Oh, really? Um, can you, actually, you can actually see that that's, that's led to... You can see that. In, I, I could see that the, within a half an hour of it going out, I was able to see that. Wow. Um, uh, on the spikes and then um we, we badgered and uh, actually I, I don't want to take credit for it one of our fans actually badgered uh um the people at westfield and badgered and we eventually got a meeting with them and for the first time on the 2nd of december they're allowing us to have a stand in westfield oh, really? um yep so we've got an i think it's 18 foot square stand in the middle of westfield we'll have players there all day guys there all day taking pictures signing autographs giving out tickets uh, giving out vouchers, all that kind of stuff. And that's the first time it's going to happen, is on the second. Do you think it's realistic to to see a potential future for the Lions where you have a full copper box week in, week out? Um, I think it's a tough ask, week in, week out. Um, I mean, our goal is to average 3,000 at the moment. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that is possible. I think... Uh, I think a lot of things have to come in place. We're, we're, the, the, the signage deal that we signed is huge in that regard. If Westfield allows us to do this once a month, that's going to be massive. Um, and we're on the verge of announcing a, a national radio deal with a, with a radio company, um, which will give us something in the region of 480 spots a week. Nice. Um, if we get all of those things all coming at the right time and the team is able to perform, I mean, I think joint second at the moment in the league, we're in the semi-final of the cup. If we can win one of these things and get to the top of the championship, uh, this is all going to, you know, it's, it's, in London, it has to be that, that cumulative uh, impact in the end. There's, I don't think there's any one solution. I think if we get 10% from all of these things on top of it, then we have a realistic opportunity. Because if we then start getting 3,000 plus at these games, it allows some of the people that we're talking to, some of the bigger brands that we're talking to, to say, oh, okay, if it's that, then we're prepared to put this behind it. And that would allow us to do more to maybe then start to see some full, some full days. How long that will be, I don't know. But if we can average 3,000 plus this year, I think that's going to be a major step forward for us. I think that is a perfect place to leave it. We've been going an hour and 20 minutes. So, uh, yeah, thank well. you so much. <laughs> we'll have to um, yeah, potentially get you on for a part two and you can give us an update on the progress. But, um, yeah, good luck with it all and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much, Sam. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.